guys um, minister the gospel to preach the gospel to you today. Thank you, Daniel. Good morning. We're doing Song of Solomon today, so I gotta wait until all the kids are out of the room. Um, before we before we look at the passage, this will give you time to look it up in your Bibles if. Uh, if you need to use the table of contents, there's no shame in that. Um, but we also have it printed in the, uh, in the bulletin. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this, uh, this particular book of the Bible lately because I've been encountering it in things that I've been reading. Um, Courtney and I last night were with a couple who is planning their wedding for this next month. We get to do that a lot. With, uh, with the younger people that we minister to. And one thing that they said they wanted to do on their wedding day, in preparation for their wedding day, was to not write their own vows. They didn't want to stand up and make up something that they share in front of everybody, but to write one another a note. A note that was specifically for that person, and that person would see and hold and keep and be able to, to communicate on a very intimate and personal level with one another. And, and when we heard that, we reminisced how when we were in college, we used to write notes to each other all the time. It was almost a rule that we had that if we saw the other person's car on campus, we had to stop and scribble down a really quick note and stick it under the windshield wiper. And we would, so when we came out of class, um, usually as a college student, if you come out of class and you see a piece of paper under your windshield wiper, it means that you've incurred the, the wrath of the, uh, the parking police, you know, and you've committed some kind of, some kind of violation. But for us, it was exciting because we, were, we knew we were about to hear from the person that we so deeply loved. And, but if we were to gather those cards together, we've kept some of those over the years, uh, I would be utterly opposed to having them read out loud in church, in front of everybody, um, because... It shared a language between the two of us, right? That, that it was a language that might not even make sense to people who are reading it from the outside. That it was filled with inside jokes and pet names and honestly not much substance, you know? A lot of sweet nothings. Uh, repeating the same tropes and cliches over and over and over again. But they were packed with passion and love. And this is what we have in the Song of Solomon. That it's love notes between two young, passionate, either newlyweds or engaged people back and forth to one another. So why do we have these notes of this couple that were left under their windshield wipers? Why do we have this in Scripture? And that's been, that's been kind of something that we've lost sight of. Uh, recently in like the last 150 years that um, early on in the church for the first 1800 years of church history 
the the people who would read this passage knew that it was communicating Christ's love to his bride. That that's what we were that's what we were reading in these in these stories. Um, that uh, that now, uh, starting in the middle of the 19th century, it began to be exclusively about sex, about a relationship between these these two people. That that this is some kind of marriage manual, and of course there there is that that is that is there. But th- think about the title of this. The, the first verse gives us the title of this, of this book. We actually have it, I think, incorrectly named in the Bible. The Song of Solomon. The Bible gives us the name of this song. It says, The Song of Songs. Which is Solomon's. Think about what that means in the Hebrew language. We know what this means. When we refer to Jesus as the King of Kings... Out of all of the other kings in the universe, Jesus is the king, the king over all of them, the Lord of lords. Out of all the other lords that exist, Jesus is the Lord of all of them. Think about with the temple that we've talked about as we've gone through Revelation, the holy of holies, the most holy place. The place that one person, one time per year could enter in. Because that's where God's presence was. And here we have the song of songs. The song above and over and more important and more lovely and more wonderful than any song. And we've reduced it to... How to be a husband or how to be a wife. There are things that we can learn there, of course. But it means so much more than that. There's so much more going on in this book of the Bible. I mean, we could say the same thing about other books of the Bible. Is is Joshua about ancient Near Eastern battle conquest? Sure. But that's not why it's in Scripture. It's in Scripture because it shows God fulfilling His promises to His people. Right? Is first first Timothy, is that a manual for pastors on how to run a church, right? Sure. We get a lot of help in how to structure our church and everything like that from First Timothy. But can y'all read it? Who are not pastors? Are we able to read the Song of Solomon if we're unmarried? If if we're not in the prime of our marriage? Um, if we've been divorced or widowed? How do we read and interact with with this book of the Bible? And for most of church history, they've seen it as Jesus, our husband, our lover. Like, we don't think about Jesus often that way. In fact, even in our conservative evangelical circles, we kind of begin to distance ourselves from that. That... um, their hymns by Samuel Rutherford that talk about Jesus, our husband. And later hymn, hymn writers or hymnals will change the word husband to like brother. You know, that Jesus is our brother, which is not untrue. But I, don't, I can't think of any place in scripture where Jesus is referred to as our brother. But we just finished Revelation. And there are all kinds of other passages in scripture that talk about Jesus as our husband. 
We as the bride, right? So um, in our living room, there's a picture of my wife with our with my dad dancing to the song uh, "You've Got a Friend" by James Taylor. Courtney didn't grow up with with the father. He was absent from her life. But she has access to a father now. Why? Because of our marriage. Because I am wed to her. She has access to a father. That's what we have. That's what Ephesians 2 talks about. That we have access to a father. Through Jesus. Our husband. That's what this book of the Bible was about. John Owen, a very brilliant, intellectual, Puritan writer, who if you were to try and read anything that he wrote, your eyes would cross and you just wouldn't even know what he was talking about because he was so much smarter than everybody in this room put together. He says that next to Revelation, the Song of Solomon, is a beautiful, mysterious book. That communicates things that are so profound that it needs pictures and images and things like that for us to understand it. So, what can we learn from this about our relationship with Jesus? What can we learn about our our prayer life? What can we learn from this book of the Bible? So, I'll read the first ten verses for us. We'll pray and then we'll talk just a little bit about it. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. She, this is the bride speaking, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. The others, this second party of women. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol the love more than, than wine. Rightly do they love you. She, I am very dark but lovely. O daughter of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? He, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love for us. And you, by your Spirit, creating in us love for you. Thank you that you have given us ears to hear your loving voice to us. 
Thank you that you have given us eyes to see how you love us deeply. Let us deepen in that love and seek and long after you to know that you love us individually, specifically, passionately. Let us be convinced of that. Be with us as we look at this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, right out of the gate, it's pretty strong, right? Let him kiss me with the kisses of, your ma- of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And we see deep intimacy here. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't just kiss anybody with the kisses of my mouth. That's a pretty specific thing, right? Um, not, in fact, as I was looking this up, there are many cultures who don't kiss lip to lip. Even now. In fact, the majority of cultures do not kiss lip to lip. Um, that is an incredibly intimate, you're sharing someone else's breath. Now that is so such a deep way to connect with a person. And this is what she longs for right out of the gate. That I want to experience this. I want, I want to feel the kisses of my husband. This is the kind of relationship that we have with Jesus. An incredibly intimate one. One that is so close. And you look a little bit later down in verse 4. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers, into his bedroom. If you visited someone's house, you know just out of politeness, out of courtesy, there are certain rooms and areas that you don't go into. You know, like you'll be in the living room and probably the kitchen. Um, hopefully, like they have a guest bathroom, but it feels weird to walk into their bedroom. Like it feels like you've sort of crossed into like. Okay, this is, this is territory where I'm not supposed to be. Because that's, that's, where, that's their most intimate part of their house. Or I think about our winter conference that we just went on. That students grow together so quickly as a group on a trip like that. And partly it's because they just spend a lot of time together. But another part of, part of it is that there's intimacy there. That they are in the same room with one another at their most vulnerable moments. When they are dead asleep, or in that kind of foggy, like, I just woke up, I haven't had coffee, like, I'm not a person yet, kind of moments, right? You find out if someone snores, or talks in their sleep, or wears contacts, or what they look up like without their makeup, or, or their, what they look like in their sweatpants, or you see the comforting stuffed toy or thing that they sleep with, or the book that they read right before their eyes close. Like, it is a very intimate and vulnerable time. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. The king has brought me into his chamber. Into the innermost part of his life. Think about John 17. John 17 is the high priestly prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus prays to his father on the night that he is going to the cross. That Jesus prays for us. For his disciples, for us, right? 
In verse 24 it says, Father, I desire that they also, and this is talking about us specifically, he's saying, not for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I believe in Jesus because of the word of his disciples. You do too. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Why, why does he want us with him where he is? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before creation happened and the love and the glory that exists between the Father and the Son, Jesus wants to bring us into that. What is more intimate than that? What is more intimate than that relationship? Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, so that, again, this is like why Jesus is communicating to us the truth of the gospel, so that the love with which you have loved me the love that the Father has for the Son before the world began, that it may be in them and I in them. That we are united to Christ. Everything true about Him is true about us. And, you know, we can, we can say, okay, this is, this is true of the church, right? That Jesus loved the church, his, his people, that the bride is a corporate kind of thing. But if we look at certain passages of scripture like Galatians 2.20, everything that is true about the church is true of us individually. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Me, not us, me, and gave himself for me. This is intimate. This is intensely personal. Intensely individual. God's love for us. You know, in the Reformed world, um, we are very good at intellect, the intellectual side of Christianity. And I'm really, really thankful for that. I was born and raised Presbyterian. I love how much um, we study and devour and theologize God's word. But there, if you think about the Christian life, it's like a triangle. You know, in one corner you have the intellectual. In another corner you have the ethical, right? How you live your life. A lot of millennials and Gen Z and students that I deal with, they are passionate about ethical stuff. They want to live an ethical life. Now, we might argue that sometimes their ethics are pretty misguided. and you, I mean, that's true. But they really, really want to live in an ethical way. And that if we have um, Christianity severed from the ethical, there's a word for that in Scripture. It's called a hypocrite. Right? Got a lot of theology, no ethics. But there's a third part of the triangle, the mystical. And we get really weirded out by the term mystical. Um, there's a book called Soul Recreation, The Contemplative Mystical Piety of Puritanism by a man named Tom Schwanda. 
He is a professor now. He's a professor for years at Wheaton. He taught many courses at RTS Orlando. Um, He defines it like this. The mystical element in Christianity is that part of its belief and practices that concerns the preparation for, the consciousness of, and the reaction to what can be described as the immediate or direct presence of God. That is, seeking to dwell in His presence, to be with Him. Not just to study about Him, but that that study about Him would help us to be with Him in an intimate way, to feel His love. And if you just have that part of Christianity, if you're just pursuing feelings and it's not based on knowledge, that's very dangerous. But sometimes in the Reformed world, we overcorrect against that, right? That we say, oh man, you know, people go, they're too much in their feelings about Christianity that we step all the way over here and intellectualize anything. Imagine me writing a love note to my wife that, you know, pontificated about the institution of marriage and its history and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, I mean, it's true, right? But it definitely takes away the intimacy of it. It takes away that, that, that the, the love, uh, the passion that's there in that relationship. Psalm 105, seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's a lot of feeling, right? Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord and that I will seek after. This is the one thing I want. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Martha and Mary, y'all remember that, that passage where Martha's running around doing all this stuff and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet doing this, gazing on the beauty of the Lord. And Jesus says, there's one thing that is necessary. And Mary has chosen the right thing. That's what we're invited into. That's this mystical side of things. Bernard, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a 12th century uh, monk, he was beloved by the Puritans. John Calvin quoted him uh, second only to Augustine. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote 86 sermons on the Song of Solomon. And he only got up to chapter 3, verse (laughs) 1. For real. Charles Spurgeon wrote 64 sermons on the Song of Solomon. Origen, a very early church theologian, he wrote uh, 10 volumes of commentary on the Song of Solomon. Just sitting and soaking in this book and thinking about the intimacy and the love that we have with, with Jesus. If, if you want somebody modern day that kind of talks about this as in a very good and accessible way, uh, Liam Gallagher. He is a pastor in the PCA at First Pres Philadelphia. He's got a series on the Song of Solomon that he did. He's also got an article that he did at RTS Orlando uh, where he uh, talks about, I think it's called Reading Song of Solomon as Christian Literature. It's like saying, we're Christians, how do we read this? And it's a really good kind kind of explanation of it. 
So we've got the the intimacy that's there. You know, Song of Solomon is such an intimate book, it feels awkward to read it in church. It's so intimate. Um, we've also got longing that's there. Throughout the book of the song uh, throughout the, the book of Song of Solomon, we um, it's mostly the the man and the wife are not together. They are just longing to be together, right? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She's longing to be with him. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil. Draw me after you. Let us run together. That, that's, that's the kind of thing that we see over and over again. Um, that there's a, uh, uh, there's a longing for, for them to be together. Even from, from the husband. That he's calling her to follow in the, in the tracks of the flock. Um, Courtney and I love playing board games together. We're not big on TV shows or movies. The way we spend time together is, um, is through playing board games. And so as you would expect... Being while college students are here, this is a really busy time of the semester. But summer is right on the horizon. And as we see summer, we're like, we get longing to, to when we can spend more time with one another. And at different points throughout the day, sometimes when we're dealing with children or students or ministry or just kind of general life stuff, we'll just kind of say to one another, like, hey, I, I want to hang out with you. I want to play a board game tonight. Like, I, I want to spend some time with you, you know? And, and even though we're not always able to do it, um, we, uh, just the fact that we long to be together, just the fact that we long to spend time with one another, our longing shows our loving, right? Our longing for one another shows our loving of one another. It's the same thing with friends you love and you care about. Telling them you miss them. Telling them that you long for the time when you can get back together with them. Thinking about the, the good days, the good times that you've had with them. That you want to relive those days again. Um, that ache, that missing of people that you care the most about. Same thing with family. Looking forward to holidays. Time where we can gather together and be together with really no particular agenda at all. Right? Like, it's awful when the only time that me and Courtney spend together is to sit down and, like, look at our planner and figure out what we're going to do. You know, like, yes, that's necessary. We, we want to do that. It's unwise not to do that. But we also just want to spend time with one another with no agenda at all. Right? What does it look like for us to do that with God? Just to long to spend time with Jesus. Life is full of activity from the time we wake up until the time that we lay down. No amount of time management is going to fix that. You manage your time super well and then the time that you have free fills up with other things, right? But what if our, our expression of our longing to pray is itself prayer? What if our, our longing to pray, to say, God, I want to spend time with you. What if we think about it in this context? Not as a failure on my part to not spend enough time in prayer, but to show my heart that longs and pursues and runs after God. And I don't know about y'all, but personally in, in my life, I've struggled um, at times with God's absence. That, that, that God is not, he doesn't feel with me, right? 
and, and Jesus even talks about this in Scripture that he says it's it's um, it's harder for us to believe in him than it was for his disciples to believe in him who could see him in flesh and blood. He says, you believe in me because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen. First Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. You know? That there's, it's more difficult for us to have a relationship with Jesus. And, and I feel like most of the time when I thought of God, Jesus' hiddenness, his distance, it felt like it was my fault that he was angry, or that maybe I was too sinful, or some, something that kept us apart. But what if our separation is not punishment? You know? What if our separation is more of a playful game of like hide and seek, of us longing to find him, and him inviting us to pursue him? Right? That's what we have going on here. She calls out, I'm looking for you. And he's like, here's where you can find me. Come this way. Follow after me. Pursue. Right? If we had, um, if, if I had access to Jesus all the time, whenever I felt like it, I wonder how often I would really want to pursue him. Right? I wonder how, if I could figure out everything in the Bible easily, I wonder how closely I would study it. We take for granted the things that we easily have access to. Maybe that's why it's, why it's set up that way. So we see the intimacy. We see the longing. Last thing is Song of Solomon is a way to hear the loving voice of our husband. Uh, in verse 5, she, she says, I am very dark. The lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flock of your companions? Notice that she's referring to herself as, as dark, as kind of scorched by the sun, that it's something that she feels very insecure about. Um, that we all have insecurities about the ways that we look and things like that. And she's very, very insecure about the darkness of her skin because apparently to have lighter skin in that culture is, is a, uh, is, is, was a, a better thing. I don't, I don't understand that. I'm super duper fair skinned. And so for most of my younger years, it was like trying to get darker. Uh, very unsuccessfully, I would turn into a Scottish lobster and just be red on the outside and white on the inside, you know. Um, so, but, but she's, she's very self-conscious about it. Um, and, and longing to be with the one who, who knows her. That she's been left by her mother's sons, her brothers. If you think about the Bible, brothers were the ones who were supposed to take care of their sisters. Brother and sister is a very intimate relationship in the, in the Bible. And we see over and over that, that almost on par with fathers, and maybe it's because fathers didn't live as long as, as, as we do now. They didn't have as long a life expectancy. But brothers were really looked to be the ones that were asked about marriage, who were the ones who were protecting and taking care of their sisters. Like, we see that throughout Scripture. What did her brothers, who were supposed to be taking care of her, do to her? 
They threw her out into the vineyards and made her stay out there. And so she's been scorched by the sun. She's been abandoned, right? Um, And she longs to be with the one who loves her and does care for her. And, um, And then see the response of the husband. She's like, where are you? Tell me how I can find you. And he said, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women... So he's like, he's, she should know at some level, but he's not angry at her for not knowing, you know. And, and he talks greatly about her beauty. And actually what this literally says is not, oh, most beautiful among women. It says, oh, fairest among women. That she's self-conscious because she is dark and scorched by the sun. And her husband calls her fair and pure and clean. Makes you think of Ephesians 5, right? Without that, that Jesus washes us with the word so that he might present the church, his bride to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's how Jesus views us. Is not as these ugly, gross, disgusting sinners. Which we are. We are we're sinners. But he washes us and cleanses us and views us as gorgeous and beautiful and fair and without blemish. And what does he do after this? I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your neck with strings of jewels. He makes a litany of all the beautiful things that he finds about her. When we understand the song of songs, the most beautiful and important and glorious Song in Scripture. It's about Jesus detailing the love of his bride, head over heels in love with us, with each of us. That transforms us when we hear his beauty, right? Or when we hear his talk of our own beauty. Not because we are beautiful, like it says in that in that meditation uh, at the beginning. God loves us not because we're lovable. The way the Jesus uh, storybook Bible puts it is, he loves us not because we're lovable, but we're lovable because he loves us. That his love transforms and shapes us and makes us different. That um, the Song of Solomon are the kisses of the mouth of Jesus to his church, to his bride. It made me think of uh, the movie The Princess Bride. At the very end, for those of you who know it, uh, Wesley and Buttercup, they fall in love. They're these young lovers and everything. And then they get separated and he is pursuing her. Wesley is pursuing her, trying, even to the point of nearly dying. He was mostly dead, you know. But that means slightly alive, right? Um, Even to the point of almost dying, he's pursuing her and he'll do whatever he can to, to chase after and to get her. And at the very end... It ends with them kissing. And the uh, Columbo, this is Columbo, right? Um, he reads this uh, last little bit. Since the invention of the kiss, there have been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure. This one, 
the one between Buttercup and Wesley, left them all behind. That's what the Song of Solomon is. That's what the Song of Songs is. It's the kisses of the mouth that we receive from Jesus. These intimate, longing, intensely personal litanies of His love for us. And I had some passages of Scripture that just kind of list off some of the ways that God talks about His love for us. Can a woman forget her nursing child so that she has no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. A nursing mother may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Jesus gives up all other nations for his church, for his people. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me for their own good and the good of their children after me. And I will make an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I'll put the fear of me in them, that they may not turn from me. I'm going to bind them to myself. I'll rejoice in doing them good. You ever think about how Jesus loves to do good for us? That's his favorite thing in the world to do. I'll rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. The words of Jesus himself. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Intimacy. Inviting us into the chambers. This is one of my favorites from Isaiah 54. For the mountains may depart. And the hills be removed. But my steadfast love will not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. It's more likely that one day I'll drive down 431 down to here and look out and Cheeha is gone. That's more likely than Jesus turning away his love from me. Right? Romans 8, of course. I mean, the end of Romans 8. That nothing can separate us. From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What shall separate us 
from the love of God, uh, love of God in Christ Jesus. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Song of Solomon is all about. Is Jesus' love letters to us, drawing us into write love letters back to him, his passionate pursuit of his people. So I would encourage you to read the Song of Solomon. If you need some help in wrapping your brain around it, I'm in the same boat. Don't read any commentaries written after 1850. Don't do it. They're bad. They're just so boring, right? Read the early stuff. Charles Spurgeon, his sermons, I got them on Kindle for like $2.99. He's got 64 of them, and they're beautiful. And he just goes through and talks about the love that Jesus lavishes on his people. It's overwhelming, and it's incredible, and it's transformative, and it's never going away. Because he is committed to his bride. And once Jesus commits, he doesn't let go. That we are held in the hands of our Father and held in the hands of our Savior and no one will be able to take us from their hands. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for giving us a husband in Christ. That all of our deep longings to be loved, to be known, to be accepted, and even to be celebrated over. That those are all met in Christ. That when I seek those things in this world, even in relationships and accomplishments, all these things are going to leave me so dissatisfied. But the love of Jesus is better than wine. Than anything else in all creation. It is so much better. It is so much more satisfying. It is so much more enduring. I pray that for each one of us. That you would kiss us with the kisses of your mouth. Let us know that intimacy. And that depth of relationship with you. We pray this all in Jesus name. Amen.
Similar to that uh, passage in Isaiah that we read about Jesus being willing or God being willing to give the nations in exchange for his people. Um, that we hear in 1 Peter that we've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by our forefathers, not by perishable things such as silver and gold. Jesus didn't just pay a bride price of silver and gold to us, even an abundance of silver and gold. But it says that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, like that without land, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That Jesus with without blemish and spot, he gave his blood to cleanse us, to make us without blemish or spot. And that's what we have in the Lord's Supper. We have a remembrance, a memorial, an activity in this. Um, This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a preview of the wedding feast of the Lamb that we have in Revelation. If you are united to Christ by faith, if you are the bride of Christ, we invite you to come and to partake of this. Um, but if you are not, then we ask you to consider these things. Consider that all the loving and the longing that you want in this world can be met only in Him. But let us feast together and to enjoy the redemption that we have in Jesus. Let me pray for us real quick and then we'll start. Father, thank you for this meal that you've given to give us a tangible reminder of all the words that you speak to us. I pray that you would minister to us now in this moment. That we will be uh, shaped by this activity and drawn closer to you and have new eyes to see Jesus, our husband, in a deeper, more intimate way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.